This podcast is sponsored by MSA Globe. At MSA, your health and safety drive us to develop advanced safety equipment with performance and protection in perfect balance. Like Globe Athletics, the latest innovation in turnout gear. Developed as athletic gear for firefighters, athletics uses unique stretch fabrics that provide body contoured fit for unprecedented range of motion and flexibility. It's lighter weight, less bulky, and provides the protection you need from your Globe turnout gear. Get the full story at msa.com slash globe. Hello and welcome to Today on Firehouse. I'm Peter Matthews, Editor-in-Chief of Firehouse Magazine at firehouse.com and Conference Director for Firehouse Expo. Thanks for downloading and or streaming this podcast. We appreciate it. Uh, Excited to have Mike Daly, a longtime Firehouse contributor and and a good friend on the podcast today. Uh, Before we get into the podcast, I'd just like to thank MSA and Globe for their continued support of this podcast series. We greatly appreciate everything that Globe and MSA does for the fire service and uh, all their sponsorship opportunities they do through the Firehouse brand to provide you with the latest information that you need to know. So Mike's going to talk today about the article that he had published in the December issue of Firehouse. The uh, the headline of the, or sorry, the title of the article is When the Sun Goes Down, Nighttime Fireground Operations and Training. And we're going to talk about the article and really kind of dig into some of the topics because sometimes we just don't have enough space for all the words and, and information we need to get out in the magazine. So, so Mike, thanks for joining us today. And, and can you tell us a little bit about your background in the fire service? You, you've got a, a lengthy background. You're a second-generation firefighter. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, thanks for having me, Pete. It's always a pleasure to do a podcast and be involved with Firehouse Magazine and their staff. I uh, started 34 years ago in the emergency services in a local volunteer fire department where I grew up, uh, became a career firefighter, and then uh, now a career fire officer serving as a uh, platoon commander um, in Central Jersey. I've uh, completed uh, my chief training officer and my fire officer accreditations. I'm a member of the uh, Institution of Fire Engineers. I'm also a member of New Jersey Task Force One Urban Search and Rescue served there as a rescue officer, and I am on staff at multiple fire academies in New Jersey, as well as uh, teaching at the college level in two colleges in New Jersey as well. Great, Mike. Thanks, and and, and again, I appreciate you doing the article and joining us today. And and really, you know, this this topic is is pretty interesting in the fact that a majority of departments out there, uh, you know, do their their training and operations during the day, right? And and the article talks about nighttime operations, uh, the shadows, they throw you off a little bit, you know, just not being able to do a good size up uh, at a nighttime incident. Um, and and kind of when I was emailing back and forth with you setting up this podcast, you know, one of the things I mentioned was uh, back on Long Island when I was a volunteer, and it seems the majority of the volunteer fire services in this case, they do their training at night um, at a fire academy or, you know, a, a, an acquired structure. So, Fire ground changes, and not just the fire ground, but any emergency scene changes at night. All of a sudden, you, you start to lose a lot, right? Like I said, shadows. You can you can light the side of a building and it throws a huge shadow, and now you're really putting things in the dark, literally at that point, by by throwing some scene lights up. So let's talk a little bit about nighttime training and nighttime fire ground operations and uh, what that does to your fire ground skills and, and where it might create some, some challenges and some hazards for firefighters on the fire ground. Sure. You know, it's it's kind of a shame because uh, we really do a disservice in the emergency services when we only think about training during one part of the day. And, and I can understand there's a lot of reasons 
why a lot of fire departments opt to train during daylight hours, whether it's on the weekend or, or during the day for some of the career departments. I mean, visibility for one's obviously much better. Location opportunities are usually much better during the daylight hours. Uh, there's uh, people that might have responsibilities with family and kids and children at night that can't make this training. Uh, so there's a lot of benefits to training during the day. The downside, though, is if you're going to be prepared to operate 24-7 like we do, it's not like we can schedule the next fire or the next emergency incident, Although we hone a lot of our basic skills, we still have to practice those skills, participate in those skills in all kinds of potential environments, and one of them includes nighttime operations. So it's great to have a solid foundation of the basics when we talk about being able to do our job, but we've got to be able to do it in all different kinds of situations. You know, we're not just worried about working in the dark or in limited visibility when we're inside a smoke-filled building. There's things that can come back full circle and bite us at night, even if we're outside the hazardous environment. Great point. Great. Thank you. So, so what are some of the, you know, what are some of the tips and tricks that you've learned over the years? And, and, you know, again, just kind of circling back to the fire academy, uh, Nassau County Fire Academy, uh, where, where it, uh, I spent most of my time in the fire service. It, it's a phenomenal facility. And, you know, just to kind of thinking back to that facility, even during nighttime operations, the place was lit so well. So you had a good, um, you really had a good perspective of what was going on. Uh, they didn't just have a single, you know, dim street light, uh, two buildings down. I and mean, it was, you could almost say it was like late afternoon lighting, uh, no matter what time of the evening it was. So, um, so just just tell us. I mean, what are what are some of the tips that you've learned over the years, uh, especially you know teaching at the academy, for instance. Uh, you know, where you're, you're there multiple nights a week, right? And 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 what is it that you've seen, or or what is it some of the students or other instructors have shared with you that really kind of changes at night for them, where they're they're seeing things and they're operating a little bit differently. Well, we go back to the foundations of the basic things that we have to be able to do. And, and lots of the times when we train newer recruits as they're coming through the well, boot school uh, is the ability to perform these skills under arduous conditions and, and limited visibility. But and before we even get to that point, if you think about even getting to the scene, when we even train our drivers at the firehouse, uh, when I train new drivers, we do uh, six months and uh, before they can qualify. And, and a lot of the training is at night. We, we we let them drive, we let them drive at night, then we let them drive to emergencies during the day, then we let them drive to emergencies during the night, then we make them the operator for the shift for a month or so, and then we we, we actually uh, qualify them. Now, you know, things change at night. I mean, and I'm in a, I'm in a part rural uh, town that's about 43 square miles that still has a lot of open space. So a lot of things that you don't see at night will distract you and provide obstacles and issues that you have to deal with while you're even going to the alarm, whether it's the reflection mm -hmm. off of buildings, whether it's backing down the street, whether it's finding the wire side uh, of an address where you have to worry about putting ladders up or going with your aerial device to even in some cases uh, where we have deer or animals that are running across the street at night or, uh, uh, you know, limited access to buildings uh, around the rear of these buildings that are dimly lit at night and how you would do that. So, so there has to be some training in limited operation just for driving. I mean, when we talk about 
being able to perform skills based skills. One of the things that I'm I'm adamant about is my engine is a rolling toolbox. And one of the things that I expect every member of my company to be able to do is to field repair everything that's on that rig. And it's really great when the sun's out and I can see, but the reality of it is you have to go to the back of a type three strip mall and, and provide ventilation and you can't get the saw started. I expect you to be able to get that saw started and fix that saw in the back of the building in a poorly lit condition. You should know those tools. You should know that equipment. Um, you're, you're working on throwing ladders uh, in the rear of a structure where you can't see. You're working on tying off a tool to hoist it to the roof. You're working on um, <clears throat> bringing a line around uh, to an alternate means of access for an exposure protection where the front of the building is lit up uh, for the initial attack line and you're an exposure line that's going somewhere else. You've got to be able to operate in the basic skills that we able to do under the cloak of darkness sometimes. And the only way to get good at that is to practice it under those significant conditions like that. From there, Great. And then that, that's now, okay. Now let's from there, now we start to get into, you know, even the size of changes uh, at night. Um, you know, the things that we can see of a building when we first do our 360 during the day is going to difference at night. I'm a big advocate of walking around with a thermal imaging camera. At night, it's it's paramount to be able to do that. Uh, a lot of thermal bridging, a lot of things that you won't see during the uh, during the day, you're going to catch at night uh, with a thermal imager. You'll walk right past these things without that that uh, thermal imager at night. And if you're not in the habit or in, in good practice of being able to interpret what the thermal imaging camera is telling you, then that's going to be a real hindrance, especially at night. And, and, and Mike, yeah, on that, I mean, in the neighborhood where I live in Fort Worth, um, there, there's a neighborhood uh, about a mile, mile and a half away from me, and, and I listen to the radio here, um, you know, during the day and at night, and they've had three or four fires recently, overnight fires, or early, there was just one uh, this week earlier in the morning, about 5.30, and all the companies, you know, they get on, and there's nothing showing, and then all of a sudden, you know, they're calling for a line, and it's because there's smoke coming out of the rear, but, you know, and that size up when they first arrive, uh, they're not... Um, you know, they're not seeing anything. If it was a daytime fire, that's probably, you know, honestly, it's smoke you could probably see from two, three blocks away. And of course, you know, they're not smelling anything because they're they're still in a rig when they're given a radio report initially. So, uh, you know, that report changes just a few seconds after they get out of the rig and, and they, they start approaching the structure. Um, and some of that can be done, right? If you have the brow lights or if you have the, the side lights, you can certainly throw those on. Uh, but one of these was actually set back up on a little bit of a hill so even from the street, if you had lights on, you would not have been able to see anything, you know, out of the back because it was it was a cool, cold morning. So um, or damp, cool morning. I'm sorry, and, and so the smoke was kind of banked down a little bit to the street. So, um, so I mean, yeah, you know, size up is, is certainly impacted, like you mentioned earlier. You know, you, you the wires, right? Making sure that if you're setting up the ladder truck, you you you've got enough clearance and, and you can you know make your make your swing without touching a, a light pole or anything else like that, utility pole. So um, so in a, in a size up when you're pulling up at nighttime, uh, you know, using whatever lighted in, lighting it is that you have on the apparatus, what are some other tips or other suggestions that you would use when you initially show up um, compared to what you would do at daytime where you can really paint a clear picture um, as you roll up? So we come rolling up and for a report of, a, of an alarm at, at a residential dwelling. You think about some of the things that change in street conditions when the sun goes down. 
uh, it's a vastly different environment. I mean, there is uh, multiple vehicles on the road that are that are coming from work or going to their second job. We have people that are out on bicycles that are out running or exercise in dark colored attire that don't normally wear uh, reflective clothing, maybe that we don't see. Um, and even from a from a strategy and tactics point, from spotting a hydrant, uh, you know, being up in the Northeast, it's not uncommon for us to have a significant amount of snow around a hydrant. And and what we've done is put reflect, reflective uh, whips, if you will, on top of the hydrants to be able to find them. Uh, during the day, they're much easier to see, obviously. But at night, unless unless your lighting uh, reflects off of that, you you can drive right past the hydrant and wind up missing that. Um, not to mention placement at night. The streets are, are relatively empty during the day because most people are at work, minus the, the pandemic situation that we're in today. But if you think about how what your uh, vehicle um, location is on the side of the road at night when people are home from work, trying to get access to a hydrant, uh, working around vehicle placement uh, so that you can get access and get enough water out of that hydrant might change your intake choice as you roll up. I personally like to use a, a front bumper suction uh, more often than not, instead of having to worry about which side of the road the hydrant's on, as long as I can I can have that, uh, that positioning allow me to do that. Um, when we talk about uh, ladder operations, being able to set up for maximum scrub so we can uh, cover the most openings in, in, in two sides of the building, preferably, um, gaining access and, and locating close enough in the dark and being able to illuminate the scene and be able to see where the tip is or be able to control where that's going to go. Um, even from backing down dead end streets or pulling in uh, mm -hmm. to cul-de-sacs and with limited turning and placement operations are gonna, are gonna vary as well. Um, from a size up standpoint, uh, and you had alluded to before about, uh, about smoke conditions on arrival, things that aren't obvious to you, um, even these lighter, tighter sealed buildings now, uh, lightweight, tighter sealed buildings that don't allow a lot of smoke to exit um, as the older legacy houses would because they're sealed up much better, they're insulated much better. Um, so we get into more of a ventilation limited situation that could potentially come back to give us a real problem, especially if we're not paying attention to what the building is telling us. And it's a lot harder to see that stuff, those clues at night without the benefit of a thermal imager or without the benefit of adequate lighting on the scene as well. Excellent points. Yeah. It, and so what what do you guys do, you know, in North Township? And then, you know, what what do you suggest to do as far as lighting up the scene when you when you first get there, right? I mean, you know, firefighters have their box lights and they've got their uh you know the lights on their jackets, but but what else do you suggest when you're first pulling up at a nighttime incident? Um, you know, and again, it, it goes to technical rescue incidents as well, right? I mean, you roll up on a wreck or, you know, some sort of um, other building, you know, building collapse, those types of scenarios. What do you suggest to kind of light the scene um, as you're rolling up? Well, technical rescue incidents can become problematic in, in their own way, um, especially roadway incidents. And, you know, we have a ton of roadway incidents uh, where I'm at, we cover about five miles of the New Jersey Turnpike that, that keeps us relatively busy as well. And one of the issues that we've come across, and I think a lot of fire departments would probably agree with this and echo this sentiment, is being able to illuminate the scene without having to blind oncoming traffic. It's a very delicate balance. 
Uh, one of the things that we've changed over with our apparatus is all our lighting is rig mounted and it's mounted on the sides uh, of the apparatus and we will illuminate just the side that we're working on. Uh, the New Jersey Department okay. of Transportation has passed a, uh, a set of rules and guidelines for us to operate on and, and they kind of direct where the lighting needs to go. We shut our uh, emergency lights off, we leave the rear lights uh, rotators on for the incident. We send a blocker, in, blocker vehicles uh, 50 to 100 feet behind the incident so the traffic can start to slow down as they approach. The lighting, we only take uh, the lane that the incident's in plus one lane on the highways so that there's uh, multiple lanes for traffic to go by. All the lighting is, is pointed um, in a downward direction, no greater than uh, 60 degrees from the ground so that we're illuminating the scene and not pretty much the oncoming traffic. It, it, it puts the direction of the beam closer, closer to the ground than it would be to light up the area around it. So you gotta remember, we got traffic going in, in both directions. So even if we're pointed uh, 45 degrees from the incident and we're lighting up the scene, we don't wanna light uh, and, and illuminate oncoming traffic to a point where we can cause a secondary wreck. So lots of the times we're just using the, the onboard lighting pointed 60, no more than 60 degrees downward so that we're not lighting up the uh, opposite direction. Uh, great point on that too. Um, you know, here, here in Texas, we've got these, these highways that are eight and 10 lanes wide. And even that, if you're on the far right shoulder and you're coming the opposite direction, uh, it's just, it, it's challenging, especially uh, you know, with the fact that you've got multiple vehicles, an ambulance or two, you know, two fire apparatus, you know, some, some law enforcement vehicles. And, and down here, they've got a pretty good blocking program in place. Um, not just like the urban uh, Texas blocker rigs, but just departments here in general send a second rig, one to block and one to handle, um, you know, the incident as needed. And, and even that, it, it still creates a lot of lighting. Um, the department I used to belong to in, in upstate New York in Rush, it, it's a small department, pretty rural area. And, and uh, Bobby Faw, who's a, a retired uh, New York State trooper, uh, you know, he kind of came in. He had done a lot of studies on lights over the years, and this is going back to the mid-90s, and the procedure was in place before we got there. But they really shut down a lot of the emergency warning lights and just kind of focused more on the scene lighting itself, not the emergency warning lights. Enough that you would be able to see it from a distance, but to kind of cut back, and this was before the LED lights even came into the um, into the realm of the fire service. So it was an interesting opportunity to see that once you reduced a lot of those blinking lights, uh, it was actually a lot easier to see the scene itself. Um, but again, it just depends on where you're at, and you know, you know what your resources are too, as far as how much money you can throw up onto Agreed. the uh, onto the scene. So well, you know, you, you brought up a point before about about incidents. Uh, technical rescue incidents, you know, so many things that can get missed uh, when we talk about, you know, operating at night, uh, even uh, from, a, from a structural collapse standpoint, you know, when we talk about taking a six-sided approach to a structure every time that we deal with a structural collapse, and lots of the times we want to get an overhead view as well, um, <clears throat> as well as a view from the bottom and all four sides, but you think about what the potential hazards are that you can't see. Uh, live electrical wires, cracked gas lines that are uh, that are allowing pockets of gas to collect, um, broken water mains or water supplies that are going into the building, um, different forces and stresses and strains that are put on materials that you can't immediately pick up in the dark. So it's really important to be able to 
to not only illuminate the scene, but, but anticipate how to deal with some of these problematic situations um, when, you, when you are limited to visibility. Well, and, and living here in Texas, and, and even when I was in Minnesota, uh, the, the, the tornadoes that hit close to where I live, you know, in proximity, 20, 30 miles of St. Paul, they, they tended to be during the daytime. But here in Texas, all, all the, the tornadoes that seem to hit in this area tend to happen in the evenings. And just, uh, I guess it was last month, there was one in Arlington, Texas. It was an EF2. And um, I was already out driving around, um, getting a couple of errands done that evening. And I kind of, I hunkered down in the parking garage because it was pretty pretty heavy winds coming through straight line winds and some pretty good rain. Uh, so just when I was already out, I, I decided to park. And then I saw that Arlington had had some pretty significant damage. So I was over there to check it out and get some pictures and some video uh, for some content. And it was challenging driving around because Power was out in one area as it was, right? So you, you're already without power. The, the, you know, the lines. It was a. It had to be the rubber roofing material had taken out a huge power line, um, which knocked out a pretty big area. So that's the area I came into the community with. So you have literally no lighting except for the vehicle lighting at that point. And then when you got a little bit closer, there was some apartment complexes. They were heavily damaged. But I mean, the lighting was so poor because lights were knocked down. You know, the, the building lights were all out in some areas. Some they were on, some they were out like anything else, right? It just, it's a case by case basis. But but those companies pulling in, I, I mean, they had all their lights up to be able to assess those scenes. Um, but again, it, you know, there's a roof is down on a building and, and guys are crawling underneath it trying to check to make sure that, you know, everybody's out of the vehicles. And it just seems like it would ca cause a lot of head headaches and <laughs> confusion trying to make sure you're getting each spot because it, it's tough to see. And again, the lighting is, from you know, from my perspective as a photographer, it's very harsh because it's coming from one side, and it's going over or under a roof, or it's going over or around a vehicle. So you're losing a lot, and you're creating these. Essentially, it looks like a void, and it's not. It's just it's the way it looks. But you have to make sure you're checking everything. But I mean, there was debris all over the place, and and you really had to roll in slow. Um, you know, I probably took out a couple of uh, or put a couple things in the bottom of my vehicle that that night because. I was driving up not realizing how much debris was in the street because, you know, I was really the only vehicle and I was more paying attention to what was around me versus what was on the street. But um, it just seems like those those natural disasters, a lot of times they tend to occur at night down here in the south, and you really don't get a good perspective until daylight. And that's that's got to be tough for the crews uh, trying to do the right thing, trying to make their primary searches and their assessments and their window uh, windshield survey uh, assessments. and they really do have to wait until the sun is up so you can get a better view of what's going on high and low. You know, it's 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 true when they say the best the best type of lighting is natural lighting on a scene. It really is very limited mm -hmm. for shadowing, very limited for uh, voids, dark void areas. Um, one of the things that that we've done to to limit the voids and try to benefit the the, the actual illumination of the incident is to keep it localized. Uh, we've switched over to uh, some of the generators that have uh, 500 watt or 750 watt lights on them that we can put um, relatively close to the incident. Um, we started getting away from a lot of, we see a lot of departments getting away from the, uh, the long 200, 300 foot cord reel with junction box um, and uh, the pedestal lights um, <clears throat> due to 
clogging up the scene, becoming trip hazards, they become in the way wiring lane, lane where it doesn't need to, uh, inclement weather that could create uh, a circuit issue or a trips a breaker back in the rig. So we're seeing a lot more portability with that to, to alleviate that problem. And it's more of a localized uh, lining up uh, the incident where we need it specifically. Uh, you know, and not only from a fire suppression standpoint or even from a technical rescue standpoint, but from even from an investigative standpoint, you know, you have a fire and you have to come out and investigate it in the middle of the night. It would be great if uh, you can wait till daytime to do this, but sometimes you can't. And there's a chain of custody that has yeah. to be kept with the building. You know, there has to be an investigation done immediately um, after the incident is brought under control uh, in trying to get as most information as you possibly can as, uh, as close to the suppression operations of the incident as possible. So you really find in that, uh, a lot of the localized illumination that we can bring with us um, is really beneficial. Now, uh, I, I'm just starting and I, and to to uh, get into seeing some of these uh, portable lighting systems that are coming up from some of these tool manufacturers that are all uh, electric, where there's no gas engine running to, to create the uh, the electricity, where it's it's set on like a battery bank that'll hold a charge for three or four hours, which does two things. It helps to bring the lighting closer and located to where we need it. And secondly, it limits the amount of CO we're making with the engine running. Now everything is, is basically running off that battery pack that's in that unit. So we're making strides. We're doing a lot of good things. Um, cutting the cords, if you will, a little bit and keeping the scenes a lot safer. And, and think, what was it, maybe just 30 years ago, uh, departments were buying floodlight trucks, right? I mean, you, you had your small wheel-based uh, pickup or maybe a little bit larger, and literally it was a vehicle that was just bringing lighting to the scene. Um, and now it's just battery-operated. It's fascinating. Yeah, one of our, uh, one of our, uh, one of our uh, light-duty vehicles, uh, if you would, in the, in the volunteer department I joined when I was growing up uh, was – uh, a, a lighting vehicle really it had the old circle D lights on it that uh, ran off uh, twist locks with the junction box that ran off the apparatus yep. and we were able to illuminate a whole scene. We had to run what seemed like miles of wire to do it. But uh, now um, instead of having that light that's on the side of the, you know, the Bravo to Charlie, the Delta side and, and being, uh, being able just to, to light up the area. Now we can be a lot, more localized and pinpoint what it is that we're looking at. And that's the kind of thing we really need to, to focus on, whether it's from an investigative standpoint, from a suppression standpoint, uh, from a task-oriented standpoint, uh, or even from a uh, from a localized technical rescue standpoint. It still has to, we still have to find a way to get it done. But if we, but well, the skills have to be there as well, so. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It, it's like any other piece of equipment, you have to have the understanding and know how to, how to use it. Uh, so from the tech rescue side, Mike, and, and you know the, the different collapses that you've responded to, uh, the parking garages, and et cetera. I mean, when you're working in those environments, uh, does it mimic the training? Do you guys do USAR training at night? Uh, you know, collapse training at night, or how do you kind of again differentiate that field uh, of view from what you're accustomed to during training from what you're accustomed to doing at night? Because uh, 
you know, again, those voids, right? I mean, that's that's something that you're you're already going into a dark space, and and you also can be careful when you're coming out that you're not tripping over things because there's three or four floodlights that are kind of blinding you. They guide you in, right? But they blind you and 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 trip you up on the way out. Well, our team has uh, operated annually at at annual drill exercises that usually run 36 to 48 hours around the clock. So we do. Okay. have a significant portion of the team that operates at night. Um, and you're right, there's a lot of, of issues with that when operating at night. Now, think about uh, the, the level of skills that we have operating at a fire um, at night between throwing ladders and watching for wires that you can't see or trying to read a building with thermal imaging cameras for, for thermal bridging or heat signatures from fires. Now we have search people that are coming in with us that are operating in uh, in shadowed areas or nighttime operations with cameras looking for people uh, that will uh, be specific in shape and in temperature. So we're still using our thermal imagers uh, and being able to interpret uh, positions of people in voids as well um, and being able to interpret what the picture is. Um, we have to be able to, again, localize lighting there as well, um, because we're going into a void, into a uh, collapsed structure that now has a different strain or stressors, if you will, that are being put on, on these uh, load-bearing walls that maybe weren't load-bearing at once, and now it requires shore. So now it's go back to the cut station with measurements and then have to illuminate the cut station be able to measure what we need to measure and operate electrical saws and gasoline powered saws safely and then bring that wood in and those uh, struts in if need to be and we set these struts in place and toenail these struts in place or nail wedges in place or use our, our nail pattern on our cleats. There's lots of things that have to happen. Um, so being able to, to do that at night or in the, in the dark requires a very strong set of skills to be able to do that overall. So lots of the times you're, you're very limited. Now, when we were at uh, one of the uh, parking deck collapses back in 2003, we were looking for, uh, we were looking for the last victim we couldn't account for. And we were up at one, two o'clock in the morning, searching void spaces and looking all, in all kinds of areas to, uh, the fine victims, and I will tell you that uh, I was I was paired up with probably one of the best rescue officers I ever had the pleasure and honor to work under was a guy by the name of Phil Morris who helped find the last victim, um, and I was uh, assigned to help him. Um, and you think about trying to get through debris and a concrete parking deck collapse, and then I'm going to put it under the, the darkness of night, and and how he was able to find this victim and coordinate. Um, the search around that area and be able to to localize where we thought this victim was in, in the middle of the night uh, was phenomenal. Um, so being able to practice those skills means that you have to go out and practice that at night. There's no other way to do that, and it has to be done. If you're going to operate in all kinds of situations, in all kinds of environments, that's only going to come with practice in those environments. Great points, Mike. Uh, thank you. That's, yeah, uh, like anything else, right? You have to train for it uh, no matter the scenario and then uh, then do it in the rain, right? And then do it in the snow. 
Um, you know, we've, we've looked at doing nighttime training at Firehouse Expo in the past, but unfortunately it's a challenge because uh, you know, the folks are at the, the classes all day um, and it's sometimes a logistical challenge for the facilities that we use at night uh, to keep their staff there at night when they have to do their regular operations in the morning. But um, definitely, definitely something to throw into your 2021 training calendar is some nighttime operations really um, you know, maybe that's even getting off the training academy grounds. Uh, if that's where you do your training and go out to some some houses or some buildings that you're not accustomed to. And you know, here in Fort Worth, they're very fortunate. They've got um, command lights on on almost all the rigs. So right when they get on scene, once that first line's in operation, that the drivers are really good at making sure those lights get up. And that really the, the, the command lights throw a ton of light right at the scene, so you get a really good perspective. Uh, when you're out there, it really helps. Um, and something else I've seen, and I've seen it in, in all the places I've lived, um, not just the structural fires, but, you know, at some incidents, including accidents, there was a, a multi-fatal accident I was at one time in the evening, and they actually brought uh, two uh, platform aerials in and set those up, and they kind of used the, the buckets as overhead scene lighting. Uh, to make sure that, you know, for the police, uh, for their work, uh, that they were able to see everything and get all the measurements they needed for the accident investigation. But, you know, when you have that opportunity to use an aerial um, or a bucket and, and use the scene lighting that they've got or, you know, attach some lighting to the end of those rigs, um, ladders, that gives you additional lighting. It might take a little time, you know, especially if it's an extended operation, right? You're going defensive and you're going to be there for a while. It really helps keep the crews safe because you can watch for potential collapse or other changes in the structure or the scene in general. Agreed. And I mean, let's go back to what you had talked about was illuminating the roadway for law enforcement professionals to be able to do their investigation. Think about having to land a helicopter on that highway to move a victim in the middle of the night. Now those pilots do a lot of great things and they can, they can probably fly with their eyes closed at this point, if I had to guess, but, Lots of the times apparatus is needed as well to illuminate an area for them to, to be able to land so they can see those obstructions or those those potential hazards as they're coming in as well. And if we're pointing our lighting upward, well, we're really, really making it unsafe. So having those uh, tower ladders or having those buckets up in the air, uh, having the headlights in, a, in, a, in an X fashion with two rigs so that the, uh, the pilot can see that mark where they, where they want to land, it's paramount. It's really important to be able to do that. Great, Mike. Thank you. Um, so, Mike, as we wrap up, I mean, is there anything else that, that we might have missed, or I might have missed, Bennett, by asking some questions here today uh, from the article that was in the December issue? Well, I, I would suggest, and I think you hit on it before, a couple of points. Number one, you the only way to get good at this type of operation is to practice it. One of the things that we did in our department, and I'm a training officer for my department, 50% of our monthly training has to be done at night. Now that's not, we're not gonna do our standard operational guideline review at night. We're gonna go out, we're gonna throw ladders, we're gonna go out and grab a hydrant at night. Um, we're gonna go out, uh, cut up a car, we're gonna go out and lift a heavy object, we're gonna go out stretch a line, <clears throat> we're going to go out and do something hands-on at night. It doesn't have to be arduous. It doesn't have to be uh, done under the most uncomfortable situations either. I mean, if you're doing it in, in 
times a year where the weather is a little bit more accommodating, then great. I think that's important as well so that the basic skills of operating at night are covered. So you're able to operate when it's cold or when it's snowing or when it's raining. Secondly, the the wise man once told me, and I, and I really believe this is the case, one of uh, the battalion chief now uh, in a uh, metropolitan department in Jersey, and he, he was uh, one of my rescue officers when I first got on the team. He always said to me, and, I, and to this day it still rings true, never take, never lose value of how the importance of the basics are. The skills that you that you develop and that you work on, although sometimes they may seem monotonous or unnecessary, but when we build that muscle memory. We are able to do that, and, and, and Chief Avillo mentions this in his, in his book about being able to operate unconsciously competent, where we actually do things and not have to think about them. And that's the kind of reflex muscle memory that we want to build in people so that if we're in limited visibility versus a smoke-filled environment or outside in the dark to first start our operations, it's that unconscious competence that we want to be able to have that muscle memory to perform that task. So you have to get out there and, and do that. But you also have to consider, and here's an important point that I want to leave with this. When we talk about night operations, there are a lot of operations that happen at night that can cause a lot of potential injury based on the things that we can't see, or even with people who can't see us. So understand that if you're going to operate at night, you're going to operate at night with a heightened sense of awareness while we're operating on that scene. And secondly, with as much localized and, and limited, if you will, illumination so that we can perform this safely. If we can't train safely, then we're just not going to do it. It's one thing to be fluent in the equipment use and the operation, but firefighters have to be able to be dependable on their skills no matter what the time of day or year that the emergency happens. So the safety of not only the responder, but also the victim or the customer, if you will, that we serve really depends on it. Thanks, Mike. I, I appreciate that. So that's a great way to kind of wrap up today. And, and so again, thanks to Mike Daly for joining us. Um, the article in the December issue is when the sun goes down, nighttime fire ground operations and training. We'll put that up on the podcast player page on firehouse.com. And, and Mike, as we wrap up, anything else you'd like to add uh, for 2021 as we, we roll into that here in the next couple of days? Well, I'd like to take the opportunity to thank Globe and MSA for sponsoring the podcast, and I'd like to thank you, Pete, and the staff Firehouse uh, for, for uh, providing a great service to the members of the fire service. Um, and I'd like to wish everybody a happy holiday season, best of luck, and safety in the year, uh, upcoming year 2021. And uh, stay focused, stay the course, but most importantly, just stay safe. Thanks, Mike. And actually, I, I, I should mention this too. Excuse me. With Firehouse Expo Direct, we just ran that here on uh, online as a, as a virtual event for the year. Uh, Mike was a presenter. Mike did a program on vehicle extrication. 
you can register for Mike's class. It's free, and you can register for the entire event, which includes Mike's class, at firehouseexpo.com. You just need to register, and then you can start viewing the programs that are on demand at this point. So, Mike, thank you so much. And, again, a big thanks to GLOBE and MSA for their continued support of the Firehouse projects. And, uh, Mike, we look forward to seeing you next year at Firehouse Expo. Thank you. Thank you, Pete. Looking forward to seeing everybody in Columbus in 2021. This podcast is sponsored by MSA Globe. At MSA, your health and safety drive us to develop advanced safety equipment with performance and protection in perfect balance. Like Globe Athletics, the latest innovation in turnout gear. Developed as athletic gear for firefighters, athletics uses unique stretch fabrics that provide body contoured fit for unprecedented range of motion and flexibility. It's lighter weight, less bulky, and provides the protection you need from your Globe turnout gear. Get the full story at msa.com slash globe.